So we do this practice to love what's already here and to uh, transform ourselves and to serve others. And those tasks are uh, quite deeply linked. Suffering grips the mind, but um, ease easily slips out of the mind. Aaron alluded to this phenomena um, that uh, some researchers did a, uh, wrote a, a famous piece that was simply titled, Bad is Stronger Than Good. <laughs> and this is uh, what they write. Bad emotions, bad parents, and bad feedback have more impact than good ones. And bad information is processed more thoroughly than good. The self is more motivated to avoid bad self-definitions than to pursue good ones. Bad impressions and bad stereotypes are quicker to form and more resistant to disconfirmation than good ones. Taken together, these findings suggest that bad is stronger than good as a general principle across a broad range of psychological phenomena. And so these habits uh, can lead us to forget all the goodness that's already here. The uh, teacher Joseph Goldstein said that you know, he's been, been practicing almost 50 years or so, and he said when he notices his mind uh, getting into the mode of like uh, actively striving for something within practice, some experience, some sense of peace, some insight, some something, uh, at one point he, his mantra simply became, uh, it's already here. It's already here. And for us, we need to actually remind ourselves of the, the goodness that is already here. Now, as we take the goodness into the heart, as that uh, nourishes us, as we come into a kind of softer relationship with our own self, that goodness inspires a certain kind of courage uh, for the complicated and sometimes arduous work of self-transformation. Now, this... um, Transformation 
is really, it's done uh, for ourselves and for the benefit of others. If, if we only ever practice for ourselves, the mind actually gets tight and uh, practice can get kind of self-absorbed, claustrophobic. And um, what sort of happens is like, if we're just practicing for ourselves, we have this kind of approach where like we really take ourselves to be this like one huge self-improvement project. And we're both the project and the project manager. (laughs) And uh, it uh, gets constricting. So Ajahn Sumedha said, don't, don't, don't become enlightened. To become enlightened is to be caught up in the game of self and time. Be awake. And so we watch uh, the motivations to practice for ourselves, but also for others. If all we ever do is practice for others, we may not see ourselves as deeply as we need to. And so there's this like uh, balance. Marsha Linehan, the psychologist and researcher um, developed a a very kind of prominent form of psychotherapy, dialectical behavior therapy. And uh, she developed that uh, for, at least initially for people with, with borderline personality disorder and at its heart is mindfulness, is just woven very deeply through the entire intervention. And it was developed for a clinical um, population where um, we could say like equanimity is low. <laughs> Aaron, the clinician over there, laughing fully. Uh, I wasn't supposed to be a euphemism. It's like, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it it is one of the a clinical condition where there's actually a lot of like noticing, but the noticing is is lacking in equanimity and if we're just noticing and there's no equanimity, it's very dysregulated. And so um, 
she's she's this kind of like you know real kind of figure within empirical psychology and mindfulness based treatments and uh, five years ago she uh, wrote uh, an editorial in the New York Times where she uh, essentially like dis- she did she disclosed that uh, she developed the treatment because she had suffered from borderline personality. And she described a kind of failed psychiatric hospitalizations and the pain of that, of her early life, and just the seeking for some kind of answer. And uh, it's very unusual to have like that level of self-disclosure from a prominent uh, academic. And she said, um, she said that, that like many times her patients would ask her, uh, like, are you, are you one of us? <laughs> you know? And, um, and they would say that like, if, if you were, that would, that would matter. And so she said, um, so many people have begged me to come forward and I just thought, well, I have to do this. I owe it to them. I cannot die a coward. And so, um, it's with that in the backdrop that I I saw uh, the uh, the dedication to the second edition of her treatment manual that is called the skill, Skills Workbook because it works, it, it's uh, designed to develop a skills to manage. And um, this, is, uh, this is what she wrote. When I'm on retreats each afternoon, I walk and wring my hands, saying to all the mental health patients of the world, you don't have to wring your hands today. I'm doing it for you. Often, when I dance in the hallway of my house or with groups, I invite all the patients of the world to come dance with me. This book is dedicated to all the patients of the world who think that no one's thinking of them. I considered telling you that I would practice skills for you so you don't have to practice them. But then I realized that if I did, you would not learn how to be skillful yourself. So instead, I wish you skillful means, and I wish that you find these skills useful. In this world, uh, we're we're all uh, patients, and uh, we're all doctors too, 
We, in the Dharma world, talk often about um, wisdom and compassion or love and understanding. And they're said to be like two, two wings of awakening. And they are distinct, but what I want to uh, suggest is that uh, they converge quite deeply. The very, um, the very gesture of looking, you know, like of really getting still and looking, it's connected to the heart. And the more deeply we see, the more reason we have to love. So I was on this, uh, this retreat teaching, uh, it was a, a UCLA retreat, UCLA mindfulness retreat. And it was, uh, it was a group that was, it was maybe quite, actually quite a bit bigger than this group. And many of them were undergraduate students taking a summer mindfulness course. And um, and they're they're like quite sincere, but like spending a whole weekend in silence with 125 people, many of whom were undergrads. That was that's inten- it was intense for them, you know. And uh, um. And they sort of like don't know the social mores of retreat and it's sweet, you know, but like they just don't, don't know. Right? So uh, at some point somebody writes in a question and uh, the question is like, um, it was very direct, which I appreciate, but it was like, what is enlightenment and describe your own personal experience? <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, um, so I, I start talking, you know, uh, it's, it's myself and friend and teaching colleague Marv, Marv Belzer. I have a, a long, long uh, time friendship and teaching colleague. Um, and so I, I start talking and I don't remember what I said, but I talked for a while. And, um, and as I finished, like the group, uh, the group got real quiet. And, and then somehow like that quiet for them started to turn like a little awkward. (laughs) So they just started clapping. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, (laughs) I'm like, okay, it's a silent (laughs) retreat. (laughs) 
but, um, so, so my friend Marv takes this as like a little bit of like, like a little bit like, uh, okay, this is now like Dharma combat kind of, you know, like, like, and there is precedent for this where there are like debates between teachers and what is enlightenment and one teacher says something and then the other teacher is like, no, you know. So he, uh, and the clapping egged him on somehow, you know. So he says like, playfully, but it was something like, you call that an answer? (laughs) And so he starts talking and answering the same question and uh, I don't, um, I don't remember all that he said, but um, I remember this. He he kind of stopped, and and he's his background is he's philosophy. He was a philosophy professor. Um, and he stopped, and he said, um, "You know, I don't know what love is." but I know that it involves paying attention. And went on to say that um, rather than exclusively thinking about love as a feeling, uh, maybe somehow love is about the willingness to deeply pay attention. Maybe you can almost feel how the the heart is involved or the heart is opened by that kind of looking. How the seeds of hatred are undermined by that kind of like deep willingness. And so if we give attention, if we offer attention in this way, uh, what do we see? Last night, you know, uh, just like the kind of sense of, of wonder and awe as we look through the lens of, of science and cosmology At a very simple level, um, as, as Wes uh, said last night, we see that, uh, that we're alive. And that's such a simple, obvious fact that we uh, don't actually acknowledge the wildness of it. If we add up, right, all the time before you were born, plus all the time after you die, that's like almost exactly all the time there will ever be. And yet, uh, remarkably, 
we're here together tonight in this moment of geological history. We see that uh, in this gesture of looking, we see that life is intense. Like we, um, people always walk around like it's not a big deal to be human, you know? They're just like, oh yeah, just human, whatever, (laughs) you know? And uh, it's like we get into the silence and we see it's, it's it's a big deal, (laughs) you know? It's a big deal. We, we see that, uh, that life is, is, uh, is made out of change. You know, that we're, we live in a kind of, uh, in a river with no banks. That we are that river. And the mind always keeps scrambling to try to like climb up on some bank and make time pause to get out of the flow of impermanence. But uh, in this river there, there are no banks. We see um, yeah that that um, can't can't go on forever, and we see how deeply we long to be happy, like in a certain sense, lurking behind everything is this wish to be happy. Rilke says, um, a spiritual awakening which does not awaken the sleeper to love has roused them in vain. Gesture of looking steadying the gaze, holding up a mirror, and somehow the heart opening. There's a a performance artist that I, uh, this exhibit I think of often, uh, Marina Abramovich. and she did, uh, had a long, not a long history of performance art, but uh, at Museum of Modern Art in New York, um, did a piece called uh, The Artist is Present. And the whole, I, I actually wasn't, wasn't there, but have read and seen film around it. And the entire exhibit was really uh, set up as a way of like putting you into a, a meditation 
retreat kind of mode. And as the centerpiece of, of the, uh, the exhibit was Marina sitting in a chair and the invitation for anyone to sit in a chair a few feet away from her and to gaze at each other for as long as the visitor wished to. And the exhibit was held over a period of, I think, a few months. And she sat with, I think, 1,500 people and many hundreds of hours of sitting and just gazing across. And um, some people would stay for a minute and some people, you know, some, somebody stayed for six hours just gazing, right? And there's one like series of photographs where the, they're like exquisite photographs and they're just portraits of the person looking back in Marina's eyes. And in this series of photographs, uh, everyone is crying. And they're remarkable photographs insofar as like the tears look different in each person and the face is constellated in a different way. And what it looks like is just there's something about sitting in the gaze of the other that open the heart to exactly what needed to be felt. And you see faces kind of twisted in pain or openness or letting go, grief. And here, of course, we're we're not doing, uh, we're not working in dyads, we're not, we don't have the gaze of the other, but we do have that sense of mirror. We are offering ourselves that, that quality of attention that begins to soften the heart, lead us into, <coughs> to feel what needs to be felt. So part of how we, we uh, transform the heart is that um, we, we touch into the poignancy of being human uh, deeply. There's just the poignancy of wanting so much to be happy and not always being able to, to have this. And as we explore like all the different corners of our experience and the poignancy of that, it actually expands the range of experiences for which we can have empathy in others. And so we're refining and clarifying our own inner landscape to be able to see and recognize 
those same things in others. And as the kind of suffering of our life and the poignancy of it starts to break our heart open, uh, we can't help but see that same longing to be happy in the eyes of others. It's like we so clearly just see ourselves in others. And sometimes when we get really still, it's kind of remarkable. It's like the only thing we see in others is their longing to be happy. It's, it's literally like everything else fades away. And every imaginable divide or dispute, <coughs> all of the potential friction is just collapses completely. And in a sense, you're just looking at yourself. And that the wish to be happy, which is itself like so innocent. You know, it's like so blameless, like I, I want to be happy. You know, how, maybe how we go about that, that, that there might be blameless or blameworthy, but the wish itself, like may I be happy, that is, uh, we actually like really sense the innocence of that and sense it in the other too. Now, these insights, um, they manifest as a kind of some wish to serve. And service can look many different ways, but there's, when there's less and less energy pooled up in the self system, uh, the gaze naturally turns outwards. There's energy freed up. I want to, to say something about um, how, how we uh, purify the intention to care, how we purify the gesture of service. You know, I have a kind of aspiration in, in teaching to, to really offer, offer teachings with no, no strings attached. to be very careful about imp imposing any, anything of my own on another. You know? And uh, 
that's a whole that's a whole practice in itself to uh, to not create a kind of uh, some economy of demands but for something to be truly freely offered which the dharma is meant to be and so part of our practice the practice of service is actually purifying that the the gesture because what happens is that the love the love that animates service can become tangled up with clinging And so ordinarily, uh, you know, what we love, we feel like we should hold tightly. And yeah, we think that uh, we get confused about the sort of open hand of love and the those fists of grasping, they get mixed and we need to distill them. So we can love ourselves without clinging and defending ideas of ourselves. In fact, some ways like the deepest kind of love is uh, like really leaving ourselves alone, like a kind of radical acceptance of like frictionless encounter with our own internal experience. This is a kind of love. We can love ourselves without clinging. We can love others without holding on. One psychiatrist said, love is the revelation of the other person's freedom. Love is the revelation of the other person's freedom. It's such a kind of beautiful image of like, to, to love another most deeply, we can't hold on to them. We want to uh, untangle a compassion from clinging. Like often what I noticed in the kind of most sticky sort of relationships, um, what might look like compassion from me is actually a kind of impulsive response to the suffering of the other that itself like just overwhelms my own capacity to hold. And I think as we, uh, as we love others, the the kind of um, yeah, their their suffering 
can be almost like destabilizing for us. And so the mind can like very quickly rush in to control their suffering rather than actually a kind of um, like true compassion, which is not a, a form of protecting ourselves from the burden of pain. And so as we purify this intention to care, to serve, to love, we, uh, our compassion, it becomes uh, pure. As we work through more and more places within ourselves, the pain of others, it doesn't like lodge and get stuck in the same way in our hearts. We can feel it very deeply. But as one teacher said, there's a front door of the heart and a back door. And it's like the, the mesh of our being opens wide enough so that pain can flow in but through. We can love our life without clinging to it. Someone said that um, even if we were to live for hundreds of years, it wouldn't feel like long enough. And in the Buddhist practice, the reflections on mortality are actually meant to like, uh, to, to know, to clarify what we care about most deeply and to uh, be there fully for our life and live in like deepest alignment we can with our values. And um, in some, or some years of volunteering in hospice, um, I, I really like got how few things matter at the end of life, you know. Like, but the the legacy of kindness, you know. Like that 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 was, oh, yeah. If that was there, it was okay. And so. We actually pick up this theme uh, as a way of like staying close to what's most precious. And if we can do that over time, over the months, the years of practice, our life starts to feel more and more complete. Now, we can invest all of this effort, all of this energy into purifying our love. And I don't think we'll regret any of that effort 
but this is not, not a perfectionistic path. And there are a lot of loose ends of being human. And it's not going to all be neat. Norman Fisher. It's hard being a human being. There's a lot to it. There really is. So I want to say in conclusion, let's all agree to accept the reality that we're not going to be able to do a very good job of this. (laughs) There's too much to do. Isn't it a relief to know that it's not going to work out? And you can just forget about that to start with. You're not going to get it right. You're not going to get it perfect. Well, don't worry. Just remember that there's no hope. (laughs) But the important thing, the important thing is, despite this, and recognizing and embracing this reality, don't worry about finishing the job or doing it perfectly. But start, you see. Start and continue. This is the thing. You can really trust that if you will start and if you will continue with commitment, that will be enough. That will be enough. So we, we start and we continue. And uh, we tolerate the loose ends in the heart, in the mind. We do what we can to, to love what's here, to transform what's here, and to, uh, to, to purify the intention to serve. This is... Uh, Leonard Cohen again, from his last, last album. I wish there was a treaty we could sign. I do not care who takes this bloody hill. I'm angry and I'm tired all the time. I wish there was a treaty. I wish there was a treaty between your love and mine. a
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.